Uh, you know what? What you wrote this. I don't know if you want to share this, but you wrote a, a beautiful thing on Facebook this morning about James Cotton. Yeah, I had to do that. I thought about it all day long when I when I found out about him passing, and I don't like to do stuff on Facebook other than I just use it to promote my gigs. Yeah. You know, occasionally I'll comment on somebody else's post on something, but I even avoid that. But I thought about it all day, and you know, I gotta I gotta say something because. There, there was, he was important mm-hmm. to all of us, you know, to me and to Downchild and a lot of musicians that I know in Toronto, you know, like James was a, a major influence and sad that he's gone, you know, I mean, uh, but yeah, there were experiences there with him, you know, I didn't tell all of them, but uh, mm-hmm. there was, I, you know, I, when I was writing it, I was thinking, this is too long. No one's gonna read this shit, you know. <laughs> I read the whole thing. Yeah, so it seems like a lot of people did. I think anything, anytime it's heartfelt, you know. And I think a lot of people. I mean, I, I think anybody in the blues has met James or seen James, and and if you've met him, you would remember. And and in some way, I just, I remember sitting backstage with him maybe the last time he was here, and his band went out to do the opening three songs, and I was behind backstage with James and. He was telling me all these things, which I could hardly hear because the band was playing, which I could hardly make up because of the way he spoke. Mm-hmm. But I, I was just there, and it was just one of these memorable moments where we we laughed and shared laughed, and I was trying to figure out what we were talking about. But you know, he he was just a very approachable person. Yeah, that's what that's what I wanted to get across in the stuff I wrote on Facebook is how he was uh, accessible and approachable, mm-hmm. mainly because he played a lot yes. like you could go and see him live from when the first time I saw him live in probably would have been early 70s maybe at the Colonial until recently you know I, I don't know when he was that he stopped touring but uh, and I had no idea that he was sick mm-hmm. you know that hadn't that word hadn't come out yet you know he just was somebody like James when he got really sick you figured that this is it for him, and when he couldn't sing anymore, you right. figured that that's that for James. Not, you know, nope, he's, he he's can't back. sing anymore, but he's got a singer. And then it's like he can't walk much anymore, but he's wheeling around in a chair. You know, like he's still going. You know, so you just kind of think, well, okay, you know, like he's going to be with us forever. You know, like Pine Top Perkins, what he made it in '99 or something <laughs> like that when he died. You know, you just he, Cotton was sort of the same. You know, you just kind of think that, okay, you know, that's the way blues musicians are supposed to be. You don't retire and live in a mansion because you don't have a mansion. Right. You know, you have to work. And they're tough. I mean, it's a tough lifestyle, right? No. <laughs> it's, I mean, yeah. It, I mean, but for it, them, not necessarily today it's but. tough but i mean it's just, yeah, i was thinking about that uh yesterday you know about about being a musician you know and some people go or people say that a lot you know oh, it must be hard and you think well my options when i was a kid the jobs that i had were working in a scrapyard loading boats and bagging groceries at a safeway store you know when i came to toronto i got a job at a factory driving a forklift truck being a musician is way easier than any of those, right? Way easier. Right. So I'm, I'm sitting here with Gary Kendall talking about his life, 
Tell me about, you, you, you come from Thunder Bay. Tell me about growing up in Thunder Bay. Well, I was, when I was born there, I was born in Fort William. It was okay. Fort William and Port Arthur. It was tw- called the Twin Cities. How far is that from Thunder Bay? They're, they're side by side. Okay. It's all one. All That's right. why they amalgamated and became Thunder Bay. Okay. Fort William, Port Arthur. There, you know, there was, you, you drove through an archway when you were going into Port Arthur, but there was no separation. Mm-hmm. And really, I think of myself, and my birth certificate and my passport say I was born in Fort William. Um, it became Thunder Bay a couple of years after I left. I like the name Thunder Bay. But I've recently started thinking back when people say, you know, where were you born? I say Fort William because it was Fort William where I was born. And more importantly, my neighborhood in Fort William, West Fort. I think of myself as a kid from West Fort. So does West Fort even exist? Or it's yeah. wiped off the map? Like is No, West Fort is a, like uh, <clears throat> an area of Fort William, like the way we have the annex, oh, okay, and, okay. Uh, Leaside here, and East York where I live now. Uh, it's West West Fort, but everybody who's from there refers to it as West Fort. We dropped the T. But I grew up in that neighborhood, and it was, you know, you want to talk about being from across the tracks. Well, West Fort was surrounded by tracks. Mm-hmm. You know, CN on the north, CN on the north, and CP on the south, or maybe it was reversed. And then there's spur lines on east and west. So the whole neighborhood was circled by railroad tracks. And it was a working class neighborhood, but it was full of uh, families. Um, a lot of the parents, like my dad, had been in the war, been in World War II. Mm-hmm. Uh, you know, the war was now over. It was the late 40s. And, you know, when I was born in 47. So it was a neighborhood full of kids. Everybody had, I came from a family where there were just two kids, and that was a small family, mm-hmm. you know. I had my friends' families. There'd be like six of them, five of them, four of them. Right. You know, I envied them because there were so many kids in their family, and there was just me and my brother and in our family. But it was a great place to grow up because it was a prosperous time. You know, everybody's mom and dad had a job, and nobody's parents divorced. You know, everybody had two parents, right. and where I grew up, anyway. I found out later in life that that wasn't the norm, mm-hmm. you know, when I met like my wife and people like that who had terrible childhoods and, you know, never knew their father and taken away from her mother. And, but when I grew up, it was, you know, the, it was, it was great. Um, to a point, you know, where I got to a certain age and, um, I realized that, um, as much as I love my uh, hometown, I had to go somewhere else. And had you gone anywhere else? Like, Not really. Um, so you had no idea what that somewhere else could be like? Well, when I got, it became a musician. I knew somewhere else had to be, I had to go east or west, you know. Right. Close, closest west was Winnipeg. Closest east was Toronto. Vancouver didn't even, or Montreal never even came into my frame of mind at the time. It was just those two cities. Okay, so Winnipeg or or Toronto, if I was going to leave Thunder Bay. When I was a kid, I'd go to Duluth with my parents for a little little vacations, or a family that lived owned the house next door to my parents. Uh, they were originally from um, Austria, and he worked in the uh, 
pulp and paper business. He was uh, the uh, foreman of a, a bush camp, a logging camp, the furthest north of Manitowage and Marathon, Ontario. It was the end of the road, Camp 70. And they would take me, before they started having a family of their own, they would take me up to with them in the summer for however amount of time I wanted to spend, you mm -hmm. know, two weeks, a month. When I first started going, I would spend, you know, a uh, month, month and a half with them in the bush. Um, later on, when I got into my teens, I didn't want to be away from my, my friends, you know, that long, so I wouldn't go for as long as a period of time. It was beautiful. It was like untouched land, you know, you could go fishing and catch fish. Right. Lots of fish. You know, and, and in a matter of, you know, you didn't have to go fishing all day to catch a lot of fish. You just went out for like an hour or even less and caught. And you had dinner. You know, depending, you go to the river, you catch speckled trout. You go to this lake, you catch pickerel. You go to that lake, you catch pike. You know, messing around in the daytime off the dock, you catch perch. You know, swimming, you see, you know, bear and moose and wolves in their habitat. The only problem with that was they used to shoot the bears because the bears came into the camp mm -hmm. and they were afraid of them. Um, so they would kill the bears and that kind of bothered me, you know, right. uh, because I, I went, um, well, I saw the guy that I lived with one time. He used to shoot bear with a twenty-two, you know, like a little tiny right. gun. Like he'd, they would come messing around the garbage. He'd lift up the window and, with a twenty-two, and he'd shoot the bear out the window of his house. Later on, he he upgraded and got like a three hundred three or a thirty thirty or more high powered rifle. But the first time I had to go with him, where he actually shot a bear, was very disturbing for me. We, you know, went to the garbage dump because the the bears were coming around, so they knew that they would be in the dump and they wanted to kill them. So I went along with him, and he was such a good shot. He would only put one bullet in his gun. So down we go to the dump, and there's a big black bear in there, and he shoots the bear. And he doesn't kill it. And he says to me, go back to the house and get me some more bullets. <laughs> it was a bit of a run, right? right. Um, and I could hear the bear in the bush thrashing around and, you know, screaming he was dying, right? And I had to run back and get more ammunition for the gun. When, by the time I got back, the bear had died. But after that, it was like, I didn't want to have any part of that anymore. How old were you? I was probably around 12. Okay. You know, that... Well, yeah, that would have an impact. You know, that yeah, I didn't... Um, and, I, you know, I grew up in an area where hunting and fishing was a thing to do, but by the time I... I guess when, when I was around 16, I got a hunting license, and I, you know, we, when I was younger, before I could get a hunting license, I would go out with my dad, go partridge hunting and stuff like that. When I got to be around 16, I got a hunting license, but... Pretty soon after that, I, I, I didn't want to have any part of that anymore. Mm -hmm. You know, carrying a gun and, and shooting animals and stuff like that. It was like, uh-uh. I can understand something that. wrong with this. Um, how did music come into your life? Well, like most people, I became a fan, you know, and it was, I think I was lucky at the time I became a fan because I was probably around eight, nine, you know, when I discovered Elvis. Mm -hmm. Elvis Presley and then Buddy Holly and Richie Valens. This is radio or this is... Radio, did, yeah. yeah. Um, prior to that, uh, my mom told me that my parents used to listen to the music of their youth was big band stuff. Mm -hmm. The white bands, 
Glenn Miller, Dorsey Brothers. Right. They had a huge collection of 78s. Like most young people, they, music was a big part of their lives. When they got older, they kind of faded, right? But my mom used to tell me that my dad used to pick me up and dance me around the living room listening to the big band music. That's probably why I like that kind of music. Mm-hmm. But my own music that came into my life was, uh, the, my earliest recollections was Elvis Presley. I flipped out when I heard his music. And it was hard to get living up north in Fort William at the time because the radio was all over the map. Like you'd hear something terrible, like how much is that doggy in the window? And then you'd hear Hound Dog. Right. You'd hear Elvis. And then some Marshmallows, you know, and then you might hear something like Green Door, you know. Um, but, um, and then Elvis, they had Sullivan Show. Elvis was, came on mm-hmm. TV. And uh, <clears throat> so you could actually see him doing his thing. Wow. You know, it was like, this is something else. Like, I started, I was, I was young, you know, I was, geez, I was like, by that time, you know, I'm eight, nine years old, I started combing my hair like Elvis Presley and, <laughs> you know, drove my father nuts, but uh, he couldn't, he didn't get that at all. Like, right. the music or the look or anything, he just, he was stuck in the 40s or his, his day, like, he wasn't looking forward at all. And mm-hmm. He just hated all that stuff, but man. For me, it was something else, you know, and I got so into it that I would listen to anybody else who played that kind of music, you know, that would come out. And uh, my my parents uh, were, they wanted to separate my brother and I and give us our own rooms. So my brother was younger, so he got the bedroom on the first floor, so they were going to build a bedroom for me in the basement. But while that room was under construction, they moved me down into the basement for my bedroom. And my grandfather gave me a, a radio that he didn't want anymore. Fantastic. And at late at night, and you know, I've heard this story from so many other people that did yeah. this. Late at night, get under the covers, turn that radio on, everybody else is asleep, and you just surf the dial, right? And find music. Because the radio stations in Fort William, they'd go off the air at, I don't know, 10 o'clock at night, midnight, there was right. radio silence. But you turn that radio on and you move that dial around and you could pick up other radio stations, most of them from the States. Which ones were you listening to? I could, I could get one out of Chicago. I think it was called WLS. There okay. was a guy on there called Dick Biondi, I think was his name. I could get that one the easiest. But in searching for that, I would hear all of this other music and it would fade in and fade out. You know, like hear what I found out later was blues or old-time country and gospel, and then it, when you'd get that really strong signal from the one in Chicago, you'd hear the modern, the, the hits of the day, like Alphys and, and then later on, other people that were coming up. Mm-hmm. So that's how, and then I once I got, really became a music fan, the first record I bought uh, was a version of Hound Dog by Elvis Presley on a 78, mm-hmm. but the flip side was, Jeez, I can't think of the name of the artist. But a different artist. It was a song called Canadian Sunset. And I can't think, I, I've got it written down somewhere who the, the flip was, because I looked it up on, on I Googled it to right. try to find out, because I remembered that 78. It was only, Elvis was only on one side. And there was this other song, Canadian Sunset, by this other guy. And that apparently was the hit. <laughs> and Elvis just, they stuck him on the other side. Wow. You know, and that's that was that was my first record, other than the little kid nursery rhyme records mm-hmm. that my parents used to get. But I bought that seventy eight, 
And then later on, I would buy Elvis EPs, which I, geez, I wish I had them. There'd be like two songs on a side, you know, Elvis right. CDs, um, or, or EPs rather. And, uh, you know, I just started, I started buying records. I started watching, um, anytime I would see musicians playing, I'd be totally, it was like a magnet. How often would you have that opportunity to see musicians? Well, back in those days, there were television shows like Country Hoedown mm -hmm. and okay. um, with King Ganim. That was on Friday nights. I think that was might have been the one that Tommy Hunter and Tommy Kama were on. And then there was another one from the East Coast that had uh, Marg Osborne and Charlie Ferguson and and they would there was always live they were live right. musicians playing. And I'd watch, it wasn't rock and roll, but I was totally intrigued by it. And you'd watch, I'd be watching these people making music and they looked like they were having such a great time. You know, like it was just amazing. Like, look what, you know, that's fun, you know, like to make music. That's, that's gotta be cool, you know, like, so all of a sudden I went from being a fan into, I want in, you know, I want to be able to do that too. And did you start with a bass or did you... No, no. I, um, I can't remember how old I was, but I might have been pre-teen um, or getting close to my teens. And I bugged my parents for uh, uh, music lessons. I wanted to learn how to play the guitar. Right. And uh, they got me a guitar, an acoustic guitar. And I think... It was a Stella, like the one you see in all of the pictures of mm -hmm. the blues guys, because they were a cheap, right. easy, accessible guitar. From my memory, I don't have that guitar anymore. I ruined it, but eventually, but um, that's what I think it was. I might have been a Stella, but I, anyway, I got an acoustic guitar, and they sent me off to lessons. And the lessons were in the back of a department store, like a store that sold... Um, there was a store in Fort William called Chapels Department Store. And the main store, you know, had everything. And then there was a, across the street, there was another part of Chapels that sold furniture, uh, stereos, hi-fis, I guess at the time, cheesy organs, mm -hmm. uh, and cheap guitars and stuff. And in the back, they had a little music studio for teaching. And I would go to this guy, gave me lessons. And it was kind of interesting because the teacher... I remember this guy, he always wore a suit and he looked like he should be in a band. Mm -hmm. And he had one of those electric guitar, which uh, was one of those ones that you see in old pictures like the Chuck Berry and B.B. King, the single cutaway Gibson mm -hmm. or Guild blonde guitar. And he had this electric guitar, which he didn't plug into an amp, which really pissed me <laughs> off. You know, because by that time I knew that you had to have that little box right. to make that thing sound right. But all he, all, it was standard music lessons. With, it was music theory. I didn't want to learn that stuff. I, look, look, looking back on it, I wish I had had a different attitude. But mm -hmm. they didn't teach music in those days the way they teach now. Like now, when you go to a, a teacher, yeah, you got to learn all of the th music theory. But at the same time, they'll teach you songs, songs of like what interests you. Right to hook you into learning the other stuff. They'll give you a little bit to get you to do the other work, right? Mm -hmm. He didn't, it was like practice these scales and learn the, these, this, these notes. Well, I didn't practice. So every week I'd go back 
I hadn't progressed at all in my lessons, and I hadn't been able to figure out anything on my own, how to make any music out of this thing. And after a few lessons, he said to my parents, he's hopeless. You know, you're wasting your money. He's not going to learn. That was that. Wow. So. How did you feel? Well, I wasn't getting it anyway. Like, it wasn't really what I wanted. Okay. He wasn't teaching me how to play, like, Elvis Presley or rock and roll. You know, I wasn't, and it wasn't, he wasn't teaching me songs. I couldn't play one song. So I, you know, I was like, you know, it was becoming a drag going to those lessons anyway. It wasn't really. So I had this guitar. It was my second guitar. The first guitar that I had, they bought me. They didn't know any better, my folks, because I was the first musician right. in the family. <clears throat> so they bought me this guitar, but it was a toy. You know, you couldn't tune it. It wasn't a real guitar. Um, so this guitar was my second guitar. Everything was in black and white, black and white in those days. And this guitar was like a brown sunburst. And I look at pictures of Elvis and his guitar looked white to me. So <laughs> I decided that I was going to make my guitar like Elvis's guitar. So I painted it white and, you know, painted the neck black and the pickguard black and mm-hmm. thinking that it looked like Elvis's guitar. Now I didn't realize that Elvis was playing this expensive Martin that was a natural wood finish, right? right? So I painted it with like house paint, thick paint, right? Like a guy came over to my house who knew a little bit about guitars and said, you idiot, <laughs> you can't paint a guitar, you ruined the sound. I thought, well, yeah, it doesn't sound very good, but that's probably because I can't play. I didn't realize I'd ruined right. this guitar by painting it. So, you know, bright moment number two, I decided that I got to get the paint off this guitar. So my dad had this electric sander. <laughs> so I get the sander out and start sanding the paint off the guitar. Clouds of dust. And the paint's coming off, but it's also taking the wood veneer off the guitar. Yeah. So it totally ruined it. You know, just, I destroyed it. Good Lord, it's amazing you actually became a musician. Yeah. <laughs> yeah, that wasn't my first, my first failure at it. I think I ended up smashing that guitar. That was guitar number two. I think eventually, because, you know, and uh, I, I didn't really, when I finally clicked for me, I was uh, in my neighborhood. I was walking down the street one day, and I, now, now I'm a little older. You know, I'm maybe 15, uh, you know, getting close to 16 or whatever. I'm in my teens anyway, and I hear music. And this doesn't sound like a radio. This sounds like live music. Where's this coming from, Right. Mm-hmm. I look over and I see these kids standing around a basement window of a house in my neighborhood. And I knew the house. It was Thompson House, two brothers that I knew, Davey and Kelly. Thompson lived in my neighborhood a few streets over. So I go over and I look in the window and there's this band playing. And this guy in my neighborhood, Davey Thompson, is playing the bass. Right, And I by this point, I'd seen bands that I knew that, you know, electric guitars, bass, drums, I knew what the instrumentation was, seen them on television. Had you seen much live? Any live performances? Yeah, by then I'd probably, we used to get rock and roll shows that would come through town, so I'd probably seen the Everly Brothers. Oh, okay. And I'd probably been to one of the Dick Clark Cavalcade of Stars and seen the Champs and Monty Mac and, you know, different and there was a guy in my neighborhood. His name was Nestor Burla. We had some rock and rollers in the neighborhood, in the town. 
you know, going to a movie one time and all of a sudden they, I didn't know them at the time, but on the intermission between movies, they bring out, you know, they, this amp comes out on stage and they bring out this guy, Nestor Berla, and he plays a couple of songs, rock and roll songs. And I find out that he lives in the neighborhood and he's this rock and roll guy. Wow. You know, like he's just, you know, later on I got to know him and there are other, I'd see posters and stuff for local rock and roll bands like Ronnie G and the Comets and the Midnighters and stuff like that. So anyway, this day when I'm walking down the street and I see this band playing and it's Davey Thompson, a neighborhood guy, and they sound great. You know, it's guitar, bass, drums, and two saxophones. And to me, it was like, wow. And they're just three streets over from where I live. This is, this is something else, right? And every time they would practice, I'd go over and I found out they were called the Belltones. And one time when they were on a break, Davey Thompson came out when I was standing there looking in the window and we started talking and I told him, I mentioned I, I wanted to learn how to play. And he said, well, I'm playing bass now. He said, Norm, the guitar player, owns all the gear, but I'm playing his bass and that's what I do now. I got a guitar that I don't need. I'll sell it to you for five bucks. Well, my parents, after I wrecked the guitar they bought, said, that's it. Right. We're not spending any more money on music lessons or instruments for you. You're done. And if you want to do that, you got to do it yourself. So I somehow got the five bucks together and I bought this acoustic guitar off of Davey. Strings were so high, you couldn't play a chord on it. But he showed me how to play the shuffle groove, which I could play, you know, and right. easily, you know, practice a little bit. I got it down and he also gave me a 78 of Bill Doggett's Honky Tonk, part one and part two. I was on my way. That was it. I had a guitar. I knew how to play one thing when that's all I ever I learned for the longest time. I couldn't play anything else. I couldn't play a chord on this guitar because the strings were too high. You know, these days you could there would be a, a luthier or something. You could take a guitar like that too and make it playable, but we didn't right. know that. So that was my start. You know, and then later on, you know, just I got together, you know, a, a friend of mine, Glenn Hoffman. We used to do a lot of things together, you know, shoot pool, go fishing, uh, just, you know, raise tropical fish. We had all these things. But one of the things that we had going for us, we decided that we were going to learn how to play guitar. And he had a, a guitar, a nice Harmony Arts top guitar. And I had my shitty one, you know, my $5 guitar. Right. And we started getting together, and he was picking it up really fast. And I was still dumped, 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 you know, a sign of things to come. I was going to stay in that, that groove forever, right? And uh, he was. But he you was, perfected it, though. He's pretty good, yeah. I could play a good shuffle on guitar. That's, and still, is about the only thing I can play on a guitar. So Glenn and I were learning how to play, and we'd get together. And, you know, we mostly I would back up. He was learning how to play lead, lead right. and songs, and I would sort of play my real basic way behind what he was doing. And uh, another guy from the neighborhood was a, fr a little older. We were, the older guy was 19. Glenn and I would have been about 16 or so. And Glenn... This, uh, Glenn's brother Jim, older brother Jim, said, you know, Mal Shays plays guitar and he wants to put a band together. 
he needs some guys for his band, so I'm going to send him over to see you guys. And he came over, and he said, I need a, I, I'm a lead guitar player. And he said, I need a rhythm guitar player, and I need a bass player. And my friend Glenn said, there's no way I'm going to play bass. <laughs> and I said, I will. I just wanted to be in a band. I didn't even really know what bass playing was. I couldn't even tune a guitar at the time. I didn't know, I, you know, right. I didn't know anything. All I knew is that I wanted to play music, and I loved it. Like, I was a big fan of music. So that's how it kind of started. That was the first band that I, it, you know, it, Glenn quit very early on. I stayed. And the guy who started the band, Mel Shea, we ended up calling ourselves the Countdowns. Um, and I think, I, I'm pretty sure that I was the inspiration for that name because I wanted to be in bands so badly I used to draw pictures of bands make-believe bands and there was one picture that I drew and the band was called Countdown and the Zeros and I showed it to these guys and I, we were looking for a band name and I said what about this you know Countdown and the Zeros and they went no what about just the Countdowns yeah, yeah. and that suited like our, the music we liked in those days were bands like The Ventures, The Fireballs, Johnny and the Hurricanes, and then the local bands, Ronnie and the Comets, The Midnighters, so The Countdowns, Donnie B and the Bonvilles. The Countdowns worked as the band name. Right. So we had a name, and uh, I went to a pawn shop and bought a... Just before we started that band, I'd gone to a pawn shop and bought an electric guitar. So by the time that band formed, I'd got rid of the $5 acoustic and I'd bought a pawn shop Silvertone guitar because I was still thinking I was going to be a guitar player. Right. Glenn was going to be the lead player and I was going to be the rhythm player once I learned how to play chords. <laughs> I still couldn't play chords and I still couldn't tune the guitar, but I had a guitar. Bought it at a pawn shop, no amp. And then Glenn, who was a pretty resourceful guy, figured out that it was a little adapter that we could get, and we could go into the back of his parents' hi-fi and plug in this adapter, and we could plug a guitar into that, and we'd have an amp. So we had one amp, two guitars. He put a pickup on his harmony, but the harmony was acoustic. So when we'd practice, I'd plug into the hi-fi because I had a solid-body electric, and he'd play the other one. Isn't that a good way to blow speakers? Uh, yeah, you know, I, I don't remember wrecking our parents' hi-fis, but because uh, we, I don't think you could get a lot of volume out of it anyway, mm. enough to blow the speaker. It was pretty weak. It wasn't like a real amp, but you could amplify it. So when we started the band, that's how we started. So when you, when, when you switched to the bass, how easy was that um, change, I guess? It wasn't, well, I, I, when we actually formed this band, I was playing bass lines on the guitar. Mm. Mel, the, the lead guitar player, would, he would tune the guitars because he knew how to do it. There were no tuners in those days. You had to do it by ear. So he would tune everything up, and then he would say to me, okay, you play this, and he'd show me what the bass line was, and I'd play that on the guitar. And we got a, you know, uh, we got a drummer eventually and uh, another guitar player to replace Glenn. And we started doing gigs. So, uh, you know, I was making about 20 bucks every 
Saturday night. So it was like, not only is this fun, there's money in it. <laughs> and, and? And I can save up this money and buy a real bass <laughs> right. and an amp and all of that stuff. I'm on my way. So for a long time, I played bass lines on a guitar until I actually could afford to buy a bass. I remember one day being over at some other, uh, there were some other guys, a lot of people played music in my neighborhood. And I remember going over to a house where there were a couple of guys, one of them played guitar and one of them played the bass. And I remember picking up the bass and trying to, trying to play it like a guitar. And the guy who played the bass said, you don't play chords on a bass. You play bass lines. Right. So little by little, I was getting educated on how that instrument worked. Uh, I just wanted to be in a band. And I, I thought that, okay, I'll be a bass player so I can be in the band. And, and I'll keep trying. And eventually, I'll learn how to play guitar. But somewhere along the road, I really locked into that instrument. Like, hey, you know, I really like doing this. I like playing the bass i like being in a rhythm section you know i like working with the drummer you know like it was there a moment was there a moment where you were playing something you got it and you thought yeah yeah it didn't really happen um a hundred percent until you know fast forward you know in in bands you know like the countdowns and then another the band that followed that a couple of years after that was which was a band that played a little bit of blues and some blues rock by now I'm a bass player, real bass player. I got a real bass, right. got a real amp. But in the back of my mind, I'm still thinking that someday I'm going to be a guitar player. Mm -hmm. And then I moved to Toronto and started playing in blues bands in Toronto. So before you, we get to that, when, what made you decide to move to Toronto? Was it music? Was it? Yeah. Okay. Yeah. Um, I was playing in a band in Thunder Bay called The Shame for Minority. And by now... I'm really ensconced in this whole mindset of music is being a musician is what I want to be. And I'm in a band and I'm a bass player and it's working, you know, like it's a real band. And we had a booking agent in Winnipeg and that was one of the things that we were thinking. And we, we had to get out of Thunder Bay. We weren't the most popular band in Thunder Bay. Paul Schaefer's band was the most popular band. Right. So we were never going to be the most popular band in, in Thunder Bay because we didn't play the hits, the top 40 stuff, and we didn't play... So were you playing originals or were you just playing... No, but we were playing obscure songs. covers okay. and we were playing blues and R&B and we weren't playing pop music. We weren't playing Beatles. We weren't playing Dave Clark Five. We didn't wear matching suits, you know. There's a lot of things going against you. Yeah, we were we were sort of like the Thunder Bay's version of the Stones. Right. You know, we were one of those kind of bands. We didn't, you know, we were the band like parents didn't want their daughters coming out with those guys. And we and we weren't the most popular band, so we knew we were never going to get anywhere in Thunder Bay. So we started looking at Winnipeg because a lot of great bands were coming. Up. We'd see great bands would come through. Uh, Fort William Port Arthur, but you know, I'll, I keep going back to calling it the original name when it's actually Thunder Bay now. But great bands would come through town from Winnipeg and from Toronto. The Winnipeg bands were mostly top 40 cover bands, whereas the Toronto bands were very cool bands like David Clayton Thomas and the Boss Men and Luke and the Apostles, mm -hmm. the Poppers, the Last Words, all, and they 
they they did some covers, but they also did a lot of blues and R&B and some originals, and they had records out. So we were being influenced by both sides, you know, from the bands from Manitoba and the bands from Southern Ontario and the legends behind all these bands and stuff like that. So we ended up getting a booking agent in Winnipeg, and we started going to Manitoba playing gigs in Winnipeg and other parts of Manitoba. So we, that was sort of a, well, we can go there. Toronto would be better, but Winnipeg's closer, and we got an agent in Winnipeg. Mm-hmm. And then that all fell apart. With the, what, what year would this have been? This would be 66, okay. 67. Um, and then the relationship with the booking agent in Winnipeg crumbled. And some of the guys in the band started going, ah, we don't want to leave, you know, we don't really want to go. We want to stay here. So me and, and the, my friend Dave Smythe had started out being the band's lead vocalist and harmonica player. And by that, that time, now he'd become one of the guitar players. And he was starting to get good pretty soon. So we decided, you know what? We don't need these other guys. Dave can sing and play guitar. And we got a good drummer. We got a bass player. We got a manager. You know, we'll just be a trio. And Paul Schaefer was living in Toronto at the time. He had left Thunder Bay to go to university. And we'd all been friends because we'd all come up in the same sort of music scene, young musician scene of Fort William, Port Arthur. Paul was in a band called The Fugitives, and there was another band called The Thorns, and another band called The Herbs, and then our band, The Shameful Minority. And all those other bands were more popular than us, but we had something going. You know, we were kind of different. And we were trying to get some original material together without much success. So our plan was we'll move to Toronto then because we don't have an agent in Winnipeg. And when we get to Toronto, we'll talk Paul into joining our band because he was really good. <laughs> and he really knows music, right? And you did know Paul. It wasn't yeah. like, yeah, okay. We, we were kids growing up together. Right. So that was our plan. So the three of us, our, our band, our five-piece band had dwindled to a trio and we bought, uh, we did, we were doing gigs around uh, town and we saved up all of the gig money. We bought a Volkswagen van and we had a PA system and we had all our gear and we loaded it all into this Volkswagen van and we said goodbye to our, our parents and our friends and our girlfriends and we headed for Toronto. What did your parents think? Um, well, in my family, there's always been a rule. When you turn 21... You either have to be going to school or have a job or you're out of the house. Right. Being a musician wasn't considered either. <laughs> so I was coming up on my 21st birthday. So I realized that, and you know, I, the atmosphere around my, my home wasn't all that great in those days anyway. My, my father could not relate to this long haired kid mm-hmm. who wanted to be a musician. And, you know, there was suspected, you know, that I was using drugs and stuff like that. And that, that did not go over well. <laughs> and we, you know, we had found a, 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 you know, a sanctuary with some girls that we knew. Their mother was around 40 years old, very liberal minded mother and good looking to boot. And she opened up her house to us so we could rehearse in the basement and we, we, we didn't want to go home our parents house we could stay with the cashbacks right hmm. so i wasn't spending much time at home anyway i prefer to just go and sleep on the cashbacks couch and rehearse there in the daytime with the band so anyway it came time to leave 
And, the, you know, the parents, I, th- I don't know what they th- probably thought that, you know, he'll come to his senses and get a real job someday. That never happened, you know. Did you have a sense of, I mean, you're obviously working and making money playing music. Did you have a sense of what a career in music would be at that point? Thought I did, but I was dead wrong, you know. I mean, I, just, I thought that, um, I guess the way that how we looked at it is this, you just put your band together and you play and you try to get good and you'll get discovered and, you know, the gigs will fall out of the sky and we never, we didn't have any idea of self-promotion or, you know, just career advancement. None of that stuff was laid out for you in those days anyway, not like it is now. There was no education. We had a guy who was our manager, um, you know, and he... He wasn't much of a manager, but, but uh, you know, we uh, we headed out the four of us in this van. The van didn't even make it to Toronto. <laughs> we got we got just south of and it was freezing cold. It was like just before it was December of 1968. We pulled out of Thunder Bay in the middle of winter, and in those days, the winter was real, not like it is now. It's freezing. So, and then Thunder Bay in those days, I don't know if it's any different than now, but. How many hours of drive are we talking about? We're talking about... Oh, 16 hours. 16 hours, all right. So the plan was we would drive to Sudbury, somewhere like that, Sault Ste. Marie, Sudbury, and then one day, and then drive the rest of the way uh, the next day. We would take two days in the drive, but the van didn't, the van didn't make it. I mean, uh, we blew a tire, you know, about an hour and a half outside of Thunder Bay. The first thing went wrong, but by the time we got to Sudbury... Uh, there was something really wrong with the van. I don't remember exactly what because I wasn't one of the drivers. I didn't have a driver's license then. Dave was doing the driving. I think he did all the driving, as a matter of fact. Maybe Bezzy, our manager, might have been a driving as well, but I know that Dave did most of it. And we went and had some work done on the van, and we're, now we're good to go to get to Toronto. We got about an hour or two outside of Sudbury and threw a rod through the engine and that was it for the Volkswagen van. With all your equipment in it. All our equipment, yeah. It was, uh, I remember that. Uh, remember Dave and I, the drummer in the band at the time was young. He was about 17. He was just a kid, but he was a really good drummer. So, and, and Bezzy was our manager. So I remember Dave and I were really, Dave Smythe and I, we were really the ones who kind of ran the show. And so we took responsibility and we said, okay, um, you know, well, I don't know what our original plan was. Oh, I know what it was. We towed the van over to the nearest radio, uh, railway station and unloaded all the gear and made arrangements to ship the gear on the train into Toronto. And then we had the rest of our stuff still in the van, our luggage. And the drummer's mom had given him all the stuff that you would need to set up house, like sheets and pillowcases and plates and pots and pans. We didn't know this at the time. He had all these boxes of stuff. We didn't know what was in those boxes, right? So we we dump off all our stuff and we make the arrangements to ship all our gear and all our instruments on the train. And now we told the bus, ba- the van back to the highway to the garage we were abandoning it at. Because it was a, uh, you could stand out on the road and catch a Greyhound bus on the side of the road. It was cold. <laughs> it was real cold. And it's night now. It's like late at night, dark out, and we're standing on the side of the road waiting for the Greyhound bus. And the bus pulls up, and it's standing room only. <laughs> and they go, the bus driver goes, I can take two of you. 
So Dave and I look at each other and we go, you guys get on the bus. The drummer, because he was the kid in the band, and the manager, because we sent him into Toronto ahead of us to set things up, get us a place, get everything. So when we arrive, our manager will have it all together, right? (laughs) Wrong. So now what are we going to do? Bus pulls off. Here's Dave and I standing on the side of the highway, way below zero, freezing cold. And you're not even in a town. No, we're out on the middle of nowhere. The only thing we know, okay, let's go back to the railway station and see if we can sleep on the bench in the railway station. And then we'll, get the, we'll go back to the highway in the morning and get, a, get the bus into Toronto the next day. That sounds like a pretty good plan. So we go back to the railway station and the guy in, in the railway station says, no, you guys aren't coming in here. I flipped out. You know, I just flipped out. I said, you motherfucker. I said, you have, I can't remember how much we valued our equipment of at the time. I said, you've got, you know, $2,000 worth of our musical equipment in your warehouse here to be shipped out tomorrow. We just paid you to ship and you're not going to let us sleep in here? Wrong. And the guy backed off and he let us sleep on the benches in the, this little sort of a railway siding. Right. It wasn't even a real railway station. And the next morning we got up and we went back out to the highway and lucky enough, we got on a bus, brought us into Toronto. And uh, I was amazed that when we arrived in Toronto, there was, wasn't very much snow on the ground. Like there was just a, like it is, was a couple of days ago. There was, right. wasn't a lot of snow. I was like, hey, this is kind of cool. And you'd never been to Toronto before? Never. I don't think any of us had. Dave Smythe, I think, had been born here. But I don't think he had ever been back. He had lived here when he was a young child. His parents had a place in Forest Hill, and then they moved to Thunder Bay. And do you remember the first impression when you got off the bus? I was just glad to be here. This was, this was great. And yeah. I knew some people here. Because this would have put him probably another 10 hours or something on the yeah. bus? Yeah. yeah, a long time. You know, they stopped everywhere on the way in. There was no, <laughs> okay. no direct oh, 14 trip. hours. It took a long time on the bus. And... Uh, yeah, I mean, we had friends from Thunder Bay that were living here. And I'd met my wife at the time, was, you know, not even a girlfriend, but who she became my wife, Shirley, and her sisters had passed through Thunder Bay, so I knew her. And uh, that was about it. And but, Paul Schaefer. And Paul. Paul was going to university. <laughs> right. So, you know, it wasn't like we came somewhere we didn't know anybody. We arrived at the, the bus depot down on, on Bay Street, thinking that... Nice, naive, so naive. I think I had about nine bucks of my own money. <laughs> Which went a lot further than it does today. Yeah, and the band had some money. We had a band float to right. rent a, an apartment and to get us, keep us going for what we thought for a couple of months. But my own personal cash, I think I arrived in Toronto, I think the story is December 11th, 1968, with nine dollars in my pocket. I think I had nine bucks of my own money. So we arrive at the bus depot thinking that our manager, Bez, he's got us a place and he's going to be there to meet us and, you know, he's our manager. Everything's going to be cool. We're on our way. We're going to be stars in no time. Dave and I get off the bus and there's nobody there waiting for us. Where's Bezzy? You know? Like, right. So anyway, we knew that two friends had an apartment in the village in Yorkville above a place called the Grab Bag, a head shop called the Grab Bag. And we knew that one of them worked there and that they had a, a place him, the guy who worked at the grab bag, and another friend, Richard Shue, 
Al Lerman at or Al uh, Friesen at the grab bag, and uh, Richard Shue worked somewhere else, bookstore or something like that. And we figured, well, we'll just call a grab bag and find out where Bezzy is. So we call up Al. Fortunately, he's at work at the grab bag, and you know, you know where Bezzy is? Yeah, yeah, he's here. Great. Did he get us a place? Yeah. You guys are going to be living right upstairs, right down the hall from me. Fantastic. You know, so we hop in a cab or walk, or I don't know how we got over to Yorkville, but anyway, we get over there and uh, we go upstairs. And he, yeah, he's got us a place. He's got one room. <laughs> one room with the washroom and the kitchen down the hall. And this one room had two beds and a dresser in it and a closet. And there's four of you. There's four of us. And we got gear coming on the train. You know, and, our, you know, amps, sound system. We had a stuff, drums. So we got this place, and you could rent by the week, four of us. But what, unbeknownst to us at the time, it was rented by one guy, by our manager, Betsy. There wasn't supposed to be four people living there. He neglected to tell us that. Right. So our gear comes into town, and we move it all into the room, takes, pile it all up against one wall. We take the two beds, which had box spring, a box spring and a mattress, and we take the two mattresses off. So now we have four beds. And that pretty much takes up the room. Right? So we're in there. Now we're, in the, this is great. And, uh, you know, I go down the hall where my buddies, they had a real sort of hippie, tripped out kind of a place Richard and Al had. Very cool, mm-hmm. you know, they'd been there a while and it was all decked out. They had this fantastic place. And, Al worked down the stairs in the grab bag, and we were in the village, which was still a happening place in Toronto. I'm like, we're on our way. And I meet Shirley, you know, who at the time was a friend. She eventually became, you know, my partner, and we, you know, we started living together. And later on, we were married and still together all this day. But I met her, and, you know, she was over visiting those guys, and I was like, I felt right at home. We're all ready, you know, to get started. We got an offer for a gig almost right away by the Vagabonds Bike Club. But we didn't take it. Right, because? We were kind of afraid. We thought, geez, you know, we don't want to go work for those guys. You know, they might not, probably not pay us and... Beat you up. Yeah, whoever. (laughs) Later on, I found out that working for those guys was pretty cool. You know, I did gigs for them later on down the road for all the bike clubs and that. And, you know, you always got paid in advance and... They don't clap for your songs because they're too cool for that. <laughs> Their gigs, the gigs with the Vagabonds and this, you know, I think I worked for the Vagabonds and I worked for the Satan's Choice. They were always, they were okay. You know, we got paid and nobody messed with us and they did their thing and we played the music and everything was cool. Uh, but we, we were too green at that time. No, we didn't take the gig and we didn't get any other gigs offered to us. And, and we were living in four of us in this apartment and... Uh, one day, we're all in bed sleeping, and I'm closest to the door. Knock, knock, knock on the door, and it was so close. I, all I had to do was reach up and open it. I reach up and open it, and it's the landlord. He looks in. He freaks out. So we get the heave-ho. Mm-hmm. Now we don't have a place to live. How, how long had you been there? Not long. week or two. Oh, okay. Because it was a weekly rental, right? So we got turfed. We might have been there th- you know, two weeks, maybe not. So we found another place over on Spadina, Spadina and DuPont. 
big room, a big, huge room with a two burner gas stove in it, washroom down the hall, but at least we had some sort of a cooking area. And this one had like four real beds in it and maybe a table. So, okay, this is good. But at the time we had started to get to know uh, Shirley um, and her sister Diane and her sister Marilyn. And they were homeless at the time. So, so were we. We, we, <laughs> we had enough money, we were renting a place. So they needed somewhere to stay. Oh, come on, stay with us. So the four guys in the band and these two girls who weren't our girlfriends, they were just friends at the time. We all move in to this place on Spadina and DuPont, you know. That didn't go over too well with that landlord. And he turfed us. Uh, well, he, he wanted to get rid of us almost as soon as we got in, but he had no grounds for getting rid, rid of us. So we waited. I think we, we paid the monthly rent on that place. So about a month after moving in there on rent day, uh, Bezzy and uh, Dave um, had given me the money. Right to pay the landlord. Uh, I think they had jobs by the time. Bezzy was working at Sam the Record Man, and David got a job as a, as a roadie for Edward Bear. So they had jobs. So they, they, were, had to, they weren't going to be around, and they gave me the money, and they said, pay the landlord. But I forgot or didn't do it or whatever. <laughs> so it was a day, we were a day late with the rent, and the guy used that as the reason to get rid of us. So now we're... You know, we're running out of money. We don't have any band money left. The two guys that had jobs, Dave and Bessie, they go and rent themselves another apartment on Spadina, south of Bloor. But me and Jim, the drummer, and Shirley and her sister Diane, we, we don't have anywhere to live. But by this time, we'd met a guy who had an apartment in Rochdale, which was the infamous Rochdale College. Right. So it was like, oh, let's go see, let's go stay at Danny's place, you know, because Danny had uh, probably had said to us at some point one time, oh, if you ever need a place to crash, okay. So over we go to Rochdale and we move in there, and I, we lived there for a couple of months until I finally broke down and got a day job, you know, and got my own place. I want to hear more. I'm just gonna, we're gonna go to part two. So I'm sure. just going to end part one, and, and we'll find out what happened to Gary Kendall, and did he ever make it in Toronto? <laughs> <laughs>